Good afternoon, America, and welcome to Carry the Load's Lessons from the Front. I am your host, Todd Boating. This is the podcast that seeks to inspire us all to do just 1% more for our country in honor of the 1% who defend us from the bad guys. And today's guest is a guy that I've recently uh, come to, to call a friend, uh, even though he is Army, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But uh, today's guest is Cole Morrison, uh, United States Army special forces and as i uh teased everybody with he's got a unique perspective on part of the war on um terrorism that a lot of people didn't even realize existed so cole morrison thank you very much for uh gracing us with your presence sir thanks for having me todd i'm looking forward to it absolutely let the jousting begin so cole um, started out, uh, he went to the, uh, the Academy at West Point, otherwise known as the other Academy, I think. Um, I, I don't have a dog in that fight, so that's just what I, what I will say. Um, and then after you graduated there, 2010, went, to, uh, went into the armor side of the Army. Is that correct? That's right. Tanker. A tanker. Tanker. M1 Abrams, Right. That's death before dismount. <laughs> before dismount. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. now when, when, when somebody's in the, uh, you know, on the armor side, is there, is it only tanks or could it be the Bradley fighting vehicles or is that something different? Yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole uh, kind of d- internal dynamic to the heavy military, I guess. The Bradley fighting vehicle is typically the infantry guys, uh, mech infantry guys could be scouts, could be scouts though. So I was okay. on the Abrams, I was on the Abrams tank. So true armor guy. And then I was actually a mortar, heavy mortar platoon leader. So a heavy mortar platoon leader inside. Now, why would, why on earth would you be firing heavy mortars when you have that big howitzer on the front of the, uh, the tank? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, I guess the, you know, over 4,000 meter range and uh, some offset for the guys to get in. So it's an, it's actually an infantry role. So my first taste of uh, infantry stuff was while I was still um, in first cav and uh, technically an armor lieutenant still, but was an infantry platoon leader uh, in the mortar section. So I, I actually, I asked that kind of tongue in cheek, but the reality is, I mean, you know, and obviously we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but for people that aren't aware yeah, you have that big howitzer on the front of a tank, but if the enemy surprises you, they get a little bit closer. That's that's a very slow moving uh, uh, turret, com- and, and it and it fires way far. So you got to be able to defend yourself closer. Am I correct? Yeah, for the most part, um, the uh, mortars are used for you know offset, you know fires and allowing tanks to get into position to where they where you know where they have the the fields of fire to engage. So that's the okay. one thing with direct fire. Tanks are fast. I was, I actually love the tanks, love the Abrams. It was amazing. We were on the newest models of them. Um, but if you can't see it, you can't shoot it. And that's kind of what the mortars are there to do. Kind of cover the blind spots in the terrain uh, to let the let those guys maneuver and get where they can shoot. See, and, and I think that's that's the key. If you can't see it, you can't shoot it. But with a mortar goes up and down and we know that uh, you don't have to be able to see it to shoot it. So, so you, you went through uh, the Academy, you go into the infantry, you go into armor and then you find your way into special forces. How did that happen? 
That's right. I think timing is, is, uh, is a big piece. I mean, ultimately timing, I think was a huge role in, in kind of where I went in my career, uh, throughout and, and I feel fortunate to have, have been, um, where I was when I was there. Um, and the same thing. So I was in Iraq. I was in the last brigade to leave Iraq, um, when we were closing that down and, uh, not handing it over to anybody <laughs> immediately. Um, but I, there were special forces, two team, two ODAs, operational detachments on our base. And one of the guys in my unit went to college with one of the Green Berets. And I played rugby at West Point. This guy was a rugby player. I believe That's it, right. It was I Kent forgot State. we talked about that. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, we used to, obviously, the, uh, the, the special forces guys had all of the satellite TV. So we would go over there to their compound talk about training, get some training for my guys, but ultimately get to watch some rugby games and uh, <laughs> just kind of saw the other side of the fence, literally and figuratively. And uh, with Iraq being over, you know, I came home and I told my wife, you know, talking to my wife said, Hey, if it's, if we're staying, it's those guys are going to be the ones that get to, to take this thing or, you know, get to do things, get to do, I think some more fulfilling stuff, obviously at that time, uh, closing down a theater is not, not what you joined the army to do. So uh, that was kind of the catalyst that made me come, come back and put my packet in for selection. So when you were going into the special forces, I mean, like you just said, you, you shut down Iraq. And so you knew that wasn't going to happen. Was Syria even on your, uh, even on your mind or were you thinking, okay, I'm going special forces. I'm sure I'm going to end up in Afghanistan. Or did you know from the very beginning what was going to happen? I think foreshadowing was uh, was not too hard to to kind of see that Iraq was still going to be uh, the, a playground for terrorists and terrorist mm -hmm. groups and and things like that. The area that I was in in Iraq was more uh, Shia um, Islam. It was actually Sadr uh, Muhammad. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's home area, uh, not Sadr City, but, you know, the actual, the whole province of where we were, uh, heavy Iranian influence and just a lot of uh, turmoil there. We, uh, so we knew, I knew something was going to, you know, high probability was going to stay in that same theater. Um, but yeah. Okay, well, hold, I, hold, hold that thought for one second, because a lot of people yeah. don't understand all the, the, the geopolitical aspects of it. So the area that you, where you were in, in Iraq, is is much closer to Iran, I'm assuming, because it, it, you're saying it had heavy, heavy Iranian influence. And who was it that you were talking about a minute ago? Um, Al-Sadr. So you hear just the, the uh, I would say the kind of the Shia, one of the Shia figureheads in Iraq. Okay. Um, I guess, and his son also. Um and, and the influence there. So the power struggle in Iraq being between the Sunnis and the Shias, I think something not to get too, too deep into is something that we kind of uh, underestimated and misplayed as, as far as uh, U.S. policy in the Iraq war. Um, something people probably largely kind of accept um, nowadays. Um, but seeing that there was going to be turmoil there, Iran is obviously still a U.S. Um, ally or major, major, you know, adversary, so to speak. And, uh, I just kind of knew that, that that area was kind of the area that I wanted to to continue working in. Afghanistan, fifth group, obviously has a history in Afghanistan as well. But uh, since the Iraq war started, um, most of the fifth group efforts have kind of remained 
all the special forces groups being regionally located, regionally aligned. Uh, fifth group kind of stayed more true to the Middle East uh, with as far as far as our kind of deployments of their focus. So most everyone in America, if you ask them about the war overseas, they're, they're going to be able, I mean, honestly, some of them wouldn't even be able to, to name Iraq or Afghanistan, but the vast majority would at least understand that we've been over in Iraq and Afghanistan. Not everybody understands what was going on in Syria. And you ultimately found your way, as you stated, shutting down things in Iraq. And then you went back into Syria. So first of all, you know, how, how did that, I mean, when that happened, were you like, was it a surprise to you at all? Or were you like, oh yeah, Syria, that's, that's been on our minds. Syria is the spot. No, uh, I think it's just a bigger understanding of the, the region. Um, you know, uh, Sykes Pico, that, that is still, uh, something we mentioned after world war one, you know, the, the, uh, allied forces drew all the borders, you know, it really comes into play in, in what I saw, you know, fighting ISIS with, with alongside the Kurds, uh, the Kurds are an ethnic group that span, um, Turkey, Iran, Syria, and Iraq, but it's, so they, the borders are just aren't representative of the actual issue. The geopolitical issue is more religious based, um, there. So kind of seeing Syria, Iraq, you know, anywhere in the Middle East, um, it's it's just where is the point of uh, influence for, or the you know the decision point, or the point where we're going to put efforts behind for some uh, geopolitical advantage. And Iraq and Syria, when you when you put it that way, when you look on the map too, it's it's largely the same. it's the same Euphrates River, and it's the same kind of desert terrain there. And uh, no coincidence that that uh, Syria is where ISIS formed, and uh, launch their attacks back in into Iraq as well. Interesting. And that, I think you really, you really kind of summed it up when, when you stated that, um, you know, we have a tendency to look at a map. We, you know, meaning the, the American culture, the Western civilization, we look at a map and we look at the boundaries and, and to us, it makes perfect sense that that's where, um, you know, that one country's fighting, you know, with another because of that boundary. And, and, and you're right. It, it has nothing to do with political lines that, as you so adeptly pointed out, were drawn as a result of World War Two uh, or excuse me, World War One. Um, but actually, it's it's more you know, like the Kurds. They don't understand any of those boundaries. In fact, they probably if you if you ask them to point it out on a map, they wouldn't have a clue because that's not the world that they live in. So I think that that can kind of speak to the the not the arrogance, but maybe the ignorance of our culture, understanding their culture uh, when it's all said and done. So did, did you see any difference in the wind down of Iraq, um, you know, where you served in Iraq and what you did in Syria? Was it the same thing? Just now you're in a special forces? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, ta- the tables turned a little bit. Um, Iraq, obviously we were there for um, an extended period of time. We had conventional forces owned all the territory. And when, when you have that, when you're in that, uh, that in, environment, the counterinsurgency environment, special forces, special operations units operate within 
in on someone else's ground. Typically, we don't own the terrain, so to speak. We, we are targeting. And Iraq was very much that way when I was there as the conventional unit. We were keeping roads open, doing, doing standard things. But we had, you know, each army unit drew it on the map of what they owned, what they were in control of. And then when we left, I think you kind of reset the game. No one's in charge anymore. There is no more um, territories held by, you know, by the U.S. And when we went into Syria, there was no conventional forces. And I'd say I left Iraq in 2012 uh, or December 11, January 2012. And I was back in Syria or I was in Syria for the first time, excuse me, in 2016. And, uh, my first experience there was different, not only from the mission standpoint, but there was no other U.S. military personnel there. Um, and you could definitely see it if someone did recognize that we were Americans, that they had never seen Americans before. So the reaction from, a, I would say, a war tire, like a war weary Iraq and an occupation weary Iraq from just American soldiers and their big big armored vehicles and, and the, you know, intrusion there in general, just kind of tired of it, but they're familiar with it. And in Syria, there was, there was no, it was all brand new people. They weren't familiar with Americans. They weren't familiar with people being from outside from not, from not from Syria being there. And so it was just a totally different feel. Okay. So I, I'm going to come back to that here in just a second, because uh, that yeah. that's an interesting Interesting point uh, of clarity. So, first of all, you mentioned insurgency and counterinsurgency a minute ago. To the layman who who doesn't really, um, you know, follow military military history, current events, anything like that, how do you describe insurgency and counterinsurgency? I will loop them into one uh, in kind of one thing, but in an in insurgent or in, an insurgency warfare is. Um, tactics, techniques, doing things to impact the in- enemy that aren't kind of face to face to put it as simple as possible. You want to do things, sabotage or behind, you know, underground and not, you not able to confront your enemy face to face. So guerrilla warfare, uh, if we want to, if we want to look at it in, in our history and we look at, um, uh, you know, how we had to fight the American revolution, it was a lot of insurgency. I mean, although they, they, they couldn't avoid. For sure. Yeah. Some no, of the I think that's, that's a great thing. And that's, you know, where special forces came from in World War II, getting people that spoke the language and had unique skills. And they were ju- jumping into uh, France behind the lines, the Jedburg teams and, and building up the locals to resist, to do things, to sabotage the rail lines, to, to impact the Germans, to kind of uh, facilitate the future success of the, the kind of open war, the conventional type of type of battle and obviously that's difficult to to fight so you know when we go into iraq uh, when we went into afghanistan um even though those were largely you know afghanistan was special forces initially and we're able to clear large large portions of land large swaths of land from the enemy because that's kind of this where we can dominate it's when it's how big is your gun type of type of warfare and then as soon as you clear it all as soon as we took all of iraq or as soon as we, you know, and we bring in our army bases and we, we we're in occupation type, you know, then the enemy is, is still there. And that's when they talk about the 300, the 360 degree. It's, it's a different type. You're looking for, you know, the targeting is different. You're not pushing a, a, a front line anywhere. 
your objectives are, are human-based and not ground-based or land-based. Interesting. Okay. So human-based. So when you get into Syria and you, well, you go, as you stated, you go from Iraq where all these people, they know exactly who you are. They know why you're there. They may be tired of it. They may be ready for the next step in this whole process, but now you get to Syria where these people don't have a clue as to who you are. They, I mean, as far as you know, uh, as far as they know, you're from Japan. I mean, you're, you're just, you look very different. So how did they accept you? And I, and I guess before we even go there, let's talk about what led us there. The, the, the leader at the time, al-Assad, there was a civil war going on. I'm going to let you take it from there. How did we end up in Syria to begin with? Yeah, uh, that's it. I, and I'll, I'll probably get uh, sharp sharpshooters all over my my history and my definitions here, Todd. <laughs> but I warned you, but it yeah, was coming. So like, I, mean, I know, I know. So, um, you know, 2014, I think uh, there was a civil war in Syria. Um, Assad, he's a different sect of Islam. He's more pro-Shia. He aligns himself more with uh, Hezbollah and Iran than the lo- the other local um, Sunni powers. Um, Turkey being a big one, their neighbor to the north, a member of NATO who is a, their religion is Sunni Islam. And so Assad's struggle was he was oppressing his people and uh, and wanting to align and establish basically uh, the Shia uh, area she crescent from and, and connect all those and, and people that kind of started the uprising against that. Um, he turned on his own, he turned on his own people. So the Syrian government was fighting against the, I think at the time or what they originally were called themselves was the free Syrian army. And they were really just fighting for kind of demo- the right to vote and say democracy, probably a very loose form of democracy, but anything other than his, uh, authoritarianism and, uh, that was going on at the same time. So that is in Western Syria at the same time, U S forces and the, the primary part of Iraq, we hear a lot about Mosul and Baghdad. Those are more Eastern Syria. And throughout the years in the, in the war, Al Qaeda and all these members of these Sunni radical groups uh, had free passage and free movement, freedom of movement into and out of Syria. So as Assad focused on his own people in the civil war, it created a massive vac- power vacuum in the rest of Syria. And ISIS was able to kind of, ISIS, I think, was just a distillation of the other Sunni groups and who could be the most extreme. They, they took the most extreme ideologies. They fought other Sunni groups that they said weren't radical enough or weren't conservative enough to, to, the, you know, to their beliefs. And they really took that and uh, we're able to capitalize on Assad, not looking, not paying attention, take Raqqa, the major city in the middle of Syria, and establish their own government. And from there, very quickly, in a matter of less than two years, decide that they had enough power to go and uh, invade Iraq and get uh, beyond Mosul with large victories over Syrian army and claiming Swaziland there and the Iraq army. And ultimately, what they did, uh, to keep the long story short here, was they claimed the caliphate, which is in the Quran, as the land that is, uh, you know, God's land, so to speak, um, and controlled by, you know, Muslim leaders as as it's dictated, and it's going to be this 
Islamic utopia, so to speak. And they did that all in a matter of two years because there was no one paying any attention to them. And that leads us to our hero of the story uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you and the others uh, that ended up there. So, so Army Special Forces essentially was inserted at that point to begin some disruption. Is that, is that a fair way to put it? That's a fair way to put it, for sure. Okay. And so these people now, uh, going back to what I was asking about, these people, that they have no idea where you're from. They, they just know that you're not from there. How did they accept you? Did they, um, did they accept you with open arms? Was it with tempered uh, enthusiasm? Um, how were you viewed by them? Tempered enthusiasm is a, is a good way to put it. I would say, Todd, it's, you know, we were, um, we don't go in there. We're obviously 12 man teams on ODAs and talking about the, the sector, you know, our focus that we were, you know, the area we were in, in, in the Northwest Syria was you have to have a, uh, a force, a local force in order to multiply. You can't multiply by zero, right? <laughs> you multiply by one, you still got the same thing. So you have to have other people. So really we had, the task is to build a, uh, for us is in order to defeat ISIS, you know, we need someone that, that wants to defeat ISIS and we're going to help them in a, and enable them, enable them to do that. And finding those people um, largely in that area. And I won't get into the kind of the bureaucracy or the, uh, the political stuff with, you know, how we, how we do that. But a lot of the people that we ended up with were um, free Syrian army guys that I mentioned earlier who had been fighting Assad and realized weren't doing well, weren't having great success. Um, the barrel bombing on civilians and, and the tactics he decides to use uh, didn't help that. And so they, we kind of became their, their best chance of success. Um, defeating ISIS first to, to clear that area and gave them the best chance to ultimately succeed in, you know, taking their homeland back. Um, ISIS was just as bad as Assad and different, you know, they just didn't really mix in the same area. So a lot of the folks we worked with were very happy to see us, but I think the temper, the tempered part was ultimately their goal was, you know, beyond the ISIS thing and the U S policy was ISIS focused. Yeah. And, and when you look at something like that, I mean, that, that just starts to really speak into the complexities of a, of a geopolitical landscape that is infused with a tremendous amount of, um, of religious um, divergence. I mean, it, it's, it's just, you know, to the average American, they look at it and they go, oh, you know, it's easy. Just go kill the bad guys. Well, but it's not that simple because the bad guys have different alliances with these good guys over here because they have a different uh, need from ours, but yet we're still allied with it. I mean, it, it can go on and on. So, you know, what you're talking about is um, has to make it really difficult when it comes to you doing your job as an American, because you have a responsibility to take care of your troops and, and accomplish the mission. But man, the mission gets watered down in a hurry, doesn't it? Definitely. I, I shouldn't say watered down, but it gets, it just gets real complex. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and um, multiple ways to describe it. We're the training 
in the history of the special forces and what we go through um, actually surprisingly does a great job of preparing, preparing us for how to, how to approach the problem. It's not how to solve the problem. So if you know how to frame it, if you know how to approach it, and my team was the most experienced and talented 11 guys dragging 27 year old, 26 year old captain Morrison around. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just ha- the way that we, we can approach and every, every man knows it. It's uh, every, everyone is an expert on what's going on. And um, we really, every day it was like solving the calculus problem of today at this point in time, who is on our side, who are we with? And tomorrow it's, it, it, you can't take for granted that the, that is going to be the same answer the next day. Yeah. Okay. So what you just said, man, that just opens up all kinds of, of, of boxes to me. You said that, that the, the training you went through from a special forces standpoint, now you even said your, your word surprisingly had you prepared for this. Um, and one of the things that I don't think people understand is that, you know, the, the military, you know, as it relates to, you know, the gunfighters is a far more intellectually and educated, intelligent aspect of the military than people think, because like you said, I mean, you have to understand the, uh, the religious side of things. You have to understand the, um, uh, the political side of things. You have to understand most importantly, the human side of things. And why did you choose the word surprisingly though, that it prepared you for it? I, I was probably surprisingly was directed more at, uh, the sheer complexity of, of the, of the problem set. Um, and we would, the fact that we could, we had a base to start on we had that we could at least have a framework and define it and go at it each day. Um, you wouldn't think that that's in a, in a manual or in an experience in the schoolhouse. Um, we, you know, equated it in, in reference to a, uh, some of the special forces like uh, Q course training, qualification course training, one of the phase, the culminating phase there is called Robin Sage. And, and we just kind of joke like, you know, this is a Robin Sage scenario. This is where they want you to fail. So they make, they throw all the complexities in. And at the end of the day, you figure out how you should have gone about solving the problem. They never tell you the answer and they'll never tell you the, the answer because there is no right answer. The right answer is what gets you through the day or what gets you to the objective. And we, and uh, you know, we just kind of took that approach and had a team that was, uh, you know, like I said, just rock stars and could sit there and any guy on the team could, could break something down or bring a piece of perspective in. And you hit the human thing. That was the, I mean, overarching from start to finish. We're talking friendlies, um, enemy, talking civilians, um, NATO allies, even, you know, whatever. It was all really just beyond. I mean, if we, we can take religion and set it aside, everyone that we fought with, everyone that we fought against and our NATO partners were all Sunni Muslims. So you have to take like the easy thing off the top, you know, no one's wearing any, any uniforms, no one's identifying themselves. So you got to take that off the top. You have to really break it down to who are they? What's their motivations? And to make it even, you know, more complex in that environment, not everybody works for the same group every day. (laughs) So the fighters in, in any one of those, any given scenario, like I said, friendly or enemy, you know, they could, they're moving around the the battlefield, you know, not very clearly. So I was surprised. I mean, it's, I think looking back and reflecting on it, 
surprised at really how how prepared each of us were, each of the guys on my team were, um, as being able to articulate and define and and chew away at that complex problem set every day and ultimately, you know, had success and were able to to do what we needed to do. So, I mean, honestly, I could go on and on and ask you all kinds of questions about this all day long, because it, this is the fascinating side of, uh, of the lives that we've lived. But is there anything in particular from your, from your time in service or your time in Syria specifically, you, you go with it where you will, that really stands out with you to this day, um, that really left a lasting impression on you? Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I'll, I'll frame it a little bit. You know, we were talking about the human thing there, talking about the complexity. So our, our mission was to go in in Northwest Syria and take the, uh, the homeland away, the, the city that ISIS declared in, in the Quran. It's like, it's where Armageddon happens. There's a city, it's an area in Northwest Syria called Dabiq. It was the name of their magazine. And in the Quran, Dabiq is where Islam stands against the infidels for the last stand. And our objective was, you know, relatively straightforward, you know, take it from them. And you get, here's, you know, t- less than 30 guys and partner force and uh, go do it. So um, all that and, and everything moving there. And you can, you can imagine how fast it moves um, and who we're with and, and we're enemy focused. We're, we don't know who our, our friendlies are. We don't know, really know if we trust our partners at all. And one of the, the things that, that just kind of kept, I think it, it continued to motivate us and, and we got instant feedback, which I think in, in a longer war, you don't really get, but you know, we would take a town from ISIS. We'd, we'd have success and it may be a good day. It may have been a tough day there. Who knows what happened? Um, and at night you could, we'd sit on these little anthills or on the roof of our house, wherever we were going. And, uh, you could just watch streams and caravans of families with all their worldly possessions, their sheep, you know, their children, all their, you know, everything. And they're coming back in to take, to move back into their house free of, and ISIS was a, was a terrible, you know, very oppressive rulers. You couldn't, um, you know, couldn't, you know, cigarettes is like one example or, you know, these things, but if you got caught breaking any of their, their rules, they would, they were vicious. And so we would come in and take it and the people just couldn't wait to get back to their homes and go back to how Syria was. And so we would basically fight all day. And then at night, just watch life go back to normal for these people back to their farms and and their houses. And that was something that just really resonated with us. Like these are the people we're helping special forces is our motto is de oppressa liber to free the oppressed. And you, I would say very rarely has anyone got to experience uh, on a daily basis seeing those people be free and enjoying it and hearing them, you know, in between fighting <laughs> over and over. Uh, okay. So hold on. There's a lot to unpack there. So, yeah, okay. So, so you guys are in country. Uh, let's just kind of try and drop a visual here for, you know, for everybody, you, you are moving from South to North and you are looking to kill the enemy. I mean, let's face it. That's the job, but, the enemy that you're trying to kill is in a village that has oppressed and displaced all of the people who actually call that home. This is what they've built. It's been passed down from generation to generation in some cases. 
and you guys go in, you kill the enemy, you send them running, and then you go back on your anthill, as you call it, and are literally watching these people who are displaced return home, certainly in sheer glee that they get their life back. Did I get all that correct? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And, and it took me so much longer to say it, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, I, I read the cliff notes and everything yeah, in high school, so I know how to get there. But what's, what's cool about that, like you said, a lot of times you can't see, you know, the, uh, the fruits of your labor, so to speak, but you actually got to sit there and watch that happen. How gratifying was that, that you got to see witness what your very motto speaks to? Yeah. Like I said, that was, uh, if, if anybody ever needed any more motivation to do our job, I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone was short on that, um, during that. And there were some tough times with, uh, you know, with that deployment, that was our first of three, uh, or first of two together as a team. And I think it, it really motivated us, pushed us and kind of, you know, we could, we could subsist as, as a, as a, 12 man team anywhere for however long and however bad of conditions. Cause we knew, and we had that with us that, you know, we were free in the oppressed. We were being successful and we were saving people. Uh, okay. So I've got, I've got two thoughts on this. No, number one is, um, did you ever get to interact with these people when they came home, when they returned to their home, or did you just keep moving in the next direction? We did a little bit. It was limited, I would say. I mean, um, like you said, uh, you said going back and going, we, we actually, if we wanted to stay somewhere, we couldn't really stay. I guess we could not stay somewhere for more than a couple of days mm-hmm. or they would come knock on the door and ask us, can we come back to our house? <laughs> so you're looking at like a special forces team and everything we have going on. And, you know, each time we'd say, yeah, I mean, Sure. I guess we'll move on. And, uh, so we got some limited, limited interaction there. We always stopped and, you know, bought food and kind of traded and to try and kind of see what we could learn from it, what's going on and understand. Cause obviously thousands, tens of thousands of people coming in behind you as you go deeper into enemy territory is something that you definitely want to have a pulse on and understand what's going on. So we engaged with that, but never too much. I think so, most of them probably never even knew who we were. They, they just, they just knew that the bad guys were gone. They don't necessarily, they, they may have heard rumors they may have heard gunfire because they were probably somewhat off in the distance, but maybe close enough to hear that. Okay. So now the bad guys are gone. We're, we're going to go check it out. Hey, our home's free. We're going to, we're going to go back. All right. Well, well tell me about the, the uh, Okay, so you guys, you, you kept mentioning a 30-man team, but you, your team was only 12, which meant the people that you weren't even sure if they were really supportive of you or not, that you're fighting alongside of shoulder to shoulder, they actually outnumber you. So when you guys get together and there's 30 of you, how many ISIS are you, are you going up against at any one point in time? Yeah. 30 is just a, a random number, you know, um, as far as my team, we, my team was the 12 man kind of team, a standard special forces detachment with 
our partner force. Um, and, and our goal is to obviously always have enough partner force to outnumber ISIS. But I mean, we're taking towns and cities uh, away from ISIS and, uh, you know, large elements, I would say dozens of dozens of fighters, if not, if not more um, with never more than, you know, as far as on, on our U.S. side, just one team of guys. The, the, uh, the interesting part, the dynamic part is, is a nice way to put it would be uh, we were organizing these groups um, collectively, you know, their free Syrian army or their um, a group from somewhere else. Some of them are more established groups. Some of them groups just show up. Um, and we, you know, talk about being a, stu- a students and, you know, knowing the area and knowing the groups is, someone shows up that's, you know, not on, not on our payroll, you know, for lack of a better term or not a partner force and actually is there looking for Americans for a fight. And we always had to understand that. So uh, about 12 U S guys and hundreds of our own partner forces uh, or so we think, and, you know, large numbers of ISIS all at the same time. So it was, it was really a game of, or a lot of focus on, blending in to even with our partner force or not, not looking like Americans, not being easy to find and never being um, kind of conveniently located. So did you make it through each deployment with the same 12 guys? We did. So first of all, like all my guys made it back from both of the, the deployments. We had very little turnover. A couple of guys went, on to, to bigger and better things between the first and second trip. Uh, but yeah, I think we took 10 out of the 12 same guys on the second deployment. But um, just not, normal, not because... normal rotation. Yeah, just normal rotations there. We had That's... some guys get a couple of guys get injured from, from the group, um, not from my team. That's pretty impressive, though. Yeah. I mean, that, that's <laughs> is, is it just me or is that unusual? Um, for Syria, I think Syria is a, I think will be a case study in success and on special operations, special forces tactics going forward. I think the success sweeping success against ISIS and in a relatively short period of time of, you know, three to four years of from them claiming the caliphate, like I said, until there's no more caliphate at all, they own no land anymore. That was a relatively quick thing. And, uh, very low numbers of U.S. casualties there. Um, we did obviously in Syria have U.S. casualties, but very few, and never had any or very many uh, forces in Syria at all. To have, you know, I think the total numbers over 50, north of fifty thousand ISIS fighters removed from the battlefield, for lack of a better term. So sweeping success in a complex environment with all that going on with. Um, Why do you suppose that was? I mean, because you're right. That that's a those are some phenomenal numbers that you're throwing out. Yeah, I think it's um, you know I think it's a big testament to the professionalism of of the the units there, and not saying anything about conventional units. <laughs> there were uh, seals, there were marines. We let them come in every once in a while into Syria, so just so we could say that they were there. 
<laughs> just <laughs> so, so so now to draw to draw it a little more so bring it all the way back yeah we even let the seals and they couldn't mess it up so we we're still <laughs> fine uh no i think it's the, uh, the professionalism of, of of the community the special operations community writ large the ability to go and operate and influence and uh and to be effective and building trust with a partner force um that is not my partner force was not the same as the Kurdish forces, the Syrian democratic forces that are our largest partner over there against ISIS. Um, so it was much, uh, I just think much more efficient and um, people understood and, and knew how to, uh, I think kind of work together and work quickly and, and, and keep things going. God, that, we never, that, we never sit down and let and let and let things come back around. I'm not sure how it is, now, you know, now obviously, but we always had. I think we're able to keep our foot on the gas and keep momentum moving um, in Syria from start to finish. Well, and that's that's one of the things that we you know that we talk about in training uh, at an infantry level is speed kills. I mean, it, it can kill you or it can kill others if you know if used properly. But one thing for sure, speed kills. So. Man, what what an interesting conversation, Cole. I mean, because now, uh, you know, for a couple of people that know us, they thought we were going to talk about the actual joke that I put out there, you know, two Green Berets, two SEALs and a Marine walk into a bar and then, you know, tune in to find out. Well, you know, and, and just, just to let people know what was funny about that and, and our executive uh, director, Debbie Wright, got to ride along with uh, you know, with, with us all. And it was me and, and you and another green beret friend of ours and two Navy seal friends of ours. And she couldn't stop laughing because of all the jousting that was going on, you know, back and forth. And of course, you know, as the lone Marine, I was outnumbered as always, but, uh, uh, I, I believe I held my own. So I'll just leave it at that. That was, that was a, you know, a great trip. I mean, a, a great introduction to carry the load for me. I, I, uh, obviously Cody, introducing me to the organization and being a seal. Um, and then the first guys I meet, you know, Navy seals <laughs> and then in Utah as a Marine, I'm like, Oh man, this is, this could be rough. And, uh, then we kind of got it lined out and got, got the numbers balanced out a little bit. And, uh, it was a great time. Yeah, everybody um, determined whose tree was whose and, you know, Hey, you stay right. over there on yours. And, and I won't That's say awesome. the obligatory Todd in the backseat eating crayons joke. I'll leave that. I'll leave that <laughs> out. But no, I think, uh, and, and I always thought that way. And to bring, I mean, to kind of bring it all the way full circle, uh, one of my best friends and rugby teammates from West Point was a Navy SEAL, became a Navy SEAL from Army, from West Point, and switched over. And we seemed to always be in Iraq or Syria at the same time. And so there was, the, imagine the banner there. Uh, adjacent kind of areas there working and uh he was confused wasn't he he was confused for sure <laughs> uh he'll actually t- <laughs> uh i think he he'll say like he went to west point because he didn't get into the naval academy so that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> um but and then like you know being over there in the in a, 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 a marsoc command uh, platoon commander comes up to me and I'm, I'm I have hair not quite as great and long Mar- as your hair. Let everybody know what Marsoc yeah. is. So Marine Special Operations Command, Marine uh, Marines, um, a Special Operations Platoon in Syria, working for the Green Berets and uh, the our 
task force and the guy walks up to me. I have a beard. I have long hair. We don't wear name tapes on uniforms, very subdued. And he, he looks at me and he says, uh, did you play, did you play rugby at army? <laughs> and I'm kind of taken back. Like, yeah. And, uh, he was a guy who was a midshipman at the Naval Academy and we played each other in rugby a couple of times. So, uh, the community is just, you know, tight from kind of, I think, start to finish, um, and bonds are established on multiple levels there. And so it's always fun. I, I love cutting up. I told the guy I was going to, I was going to give him vehicles, but since he went to the Navy and he wanted to bring that up, then I, he needed to walk home after that. So well, they, they, they must've beat you <laughs> so, in rugby. So you must've still been yeah. sore about that. <laughs> Not quite, <laughs> but it's been, yeah, it's great. I mean, and, uh, yeah, like you said, like you're, uh, set up there, the two seals, two green braids. It was a great time in a Marine, obviously. It was a great time. Great trip. Well, to kind of round it out, you know, t- tell me what, what you took away. I mean, if, if there's one thing that you're going to, you know, that you're really going to remember from your, you know, your time in, in Syria or your time in Iraq, I mean, that, that, that you think is a great life lesson to pass along to others. Um, could you sum it up in any way? I think if I, if I was trying to sum it up into one thing, I, I think it's really just the human piece is so, so important. Caring about people at the human level is, uh, and understanding people at the human level is, is, uh, you know, even as military guys fighting wars, I think people would be amazed at how much, you know, human, you know, interaction, human, you know, level care, there is uh, not just from within the fort, you know, the, the services, but, you know, across the board for the civilians, for, for everyone around. So I think that's the one thing that, that uh, I definitely took away from it, from all the experiences that we had that, that really resonated uh, with me and still does. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, whether they're, whether it's here or there, people just, they just want to live. They just want to live. They want to go to their home and they want to live. I mean, that's, you know, my, uh, my, my father's actually been, uh, uh, been in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And, and at the end of the day, that's all he wants. He just wants to go home. He wants to be at his home. He doesn't care about anything else because, you know, that's, that's his safe place. Just like uh, those people that you were talking about. So Cole, thanks for sharing all that, man. And, and, you, you've you've now had the the opportunity to get to know uh, carry the load, and um, you know what it's all about. So, if I were to ask you, uh, who are you carrying? What would your answer to that question be? Yeah, so primarily uh, John Farmer, Chief John Farmer, was one of the guys, uh, one of the the uh, U.S. Green Berets killed in Syria. And uh, wear it on my on my wrist every day. He was from my battalion, and uh, a good friend and wonderful human being. And uh, that's that's who I'm carrying. Fantastic, Cole. Thank you, my friend. It's uh, it's a pleasure to see you again. And uh, I've got some other things to talk to you about offline when the when the time is right. But uh, I appreciate you giving us your time today. Thanks, Todd. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And for everybody out there, the, uh, you know, thanks for joining us. The next episode is, I'm looking forward to this one as well. I get to interview uh, a Marine sniper. His name is Brian Marin. Feel free to go out and research him. He's got some really good stuff out there. He's doing great work in the community still. That's on Tuesday, October the 5th. 
And I want everybody to, I want to remind everybody as always have a very good question to that uh, or a very good answer to that question. Who are you carrying? So for everybody at Carry the Load, my name is Todd Boating, and I am carrying Captain Rick Gannon, United States Marine Corps, who actually lost his life, interestingly enough, at the Syrian border. Who are you carrying?